Chapters 1 through 4 of On Virginity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On Virginity by St. Gregory of Nyssa, translated by William Moore and Henry Austin Wilson. Chapter 1. The holy look of virginity is precious indeed in the judgment of all who make purity the test of beauty but it belongs to those alone whose struggles to gain this object of a noble love are favored and helped by the grace of god its praise is heard at once in the very name which goes with it uncorrupted is the word commonly said of it and this shows the kind of purity that is in it thus we can measure by its equivalent term the height of this gift seeing that among the many results of virtuous endeavor this alone has been honored with the title of the thing that is uncorrupted and if we must extol with laudations this gift from the great god the words of his apostle are sufficient in its praise they are few but they throw into the background all extravagant laudations he only styles as holy and without blemish her who has this grace for her ornament but if the achievement of this saintly virtue consists in making one without blemish and holy and these epithets are adopted in their first and fullest force to glorify the incorruptible deity what greater praise of virginity can there be than thus to be shown in the matter of deifying those who share in her pure mysteries so that they become partakers of his glory who is in actual truth the only holy and blameless one their purity and their incorruptibility being the means of bringing them into the relationship with him many who write lengthy laudations in detailed treatises with the view of adding something to the wonder of this grace unconsciously defeat in my opinion their own end the fulsome manner in which they amplify their subject brings its credit into suspicion nature's greatnesses have their own way of striking with admiration they do not need the pleading of words the sky for instance or the sun or any other wonder of the universe in the business of this lower world words certainly act as abasement and the skill of praise does impart a look of magnificence so much so that mankind are apt to suspect as the result of mere art the wonder produced by panegyric so the one sufficient way of praising virginity will be to show that that virtue is above praise and to evince our admiration of it by our lives rather than by our words a man who takes this theme for ambitious praise has the appearance of supposing that one drop of his own perspiration will make an appreciable increase of the boundless ocean if indeed he believes as he does that any human words can give more dignity to so rare a grace he must be ignorant either of his own powers or of that which he attempts to praise chapter two deep indeed will be the thought necessary to understand the surpassing excellence of this grace it is comprehended in the idea of the father incorrupt and here at the outset is a paradox viz that virginity is found in him who has a son and yet without passion has begotten him it is included too in the nature of this only begotten god who struck the first note of all his moral innocence it shines forth equally in his pure and passionless generation again a paradox that the sun should be known to us by virginity it is seen too in the inherent and incorruptible purity of the holy spirit 
for when you have named the pure and incorruptible, you have named virginity. It accompanies the whole supermundane existence. Because of its passionlessness, it is always present with the powers above, never separated from anything that is divine. It never touches the opposite of this. All whose instinct and will have found their level in virtue are beautified with this perfect purity of the uncorrupted state. All who are ranked in the opposite class of character are what they are, and are called so by reason of their fall from purity. What force of expression, then, will be adequate to such a grace? How could there be no cause to fear, lest the greatness of its intrinsic value should be impaired by the efforts of anyone's eloquence? The estimate of it which he will create will be less than that which his hearers had before. It will be well, then, to omit all laudation. We cannot lift words to the height of our theme. On the contrary, it is possible to be ever merciful of this gift of God, and our lips may always speak of this blessing, that, though it is the property of spiritual existence and of such singular excellence, yet by the love of God it has been bestowed on those who have received their life from the will of the flesh and from blood, that, when human nature has been based by passionate inclinations, it stretches out its offer of purity like a hand to raise it up again and make it look above. This, I think, was the reason why our Master, Jesus Christ himself, the fountain of all innocence, did not come into the world by wedlock. It was to divulge by the manner of his incarnation this great secret, that purity is the only complete indication of the presence of God and of his coming, and that no one can in reality secure this for himself, unless he has altogether estranged himself from the passions of the flesh. What happened in the stainless Mary, when the fullness of the Godhead which was in Christ shone out through her, that happened in every soul that leads by rule the virgin life? No longer indeed does the Master come with bodily presence. We know Christ no longer according to the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5.16 But spiritually he dwells in us and brings his Father with him, as the gospel somewhere tells. Seeing then that virginity means so much as this, that while it remains in heaven with the Father of spirits, and moves in the dance of the celestial powers, it nevertheless stretches out hands for man's salvation, that while it is the channel which draws down the deity and to share man's estate, it keeps wings for man's desires to rise to heavenly things, and is a bond of union between the divine and human, by its mediation bringing into harmony these existences so widely divided. What words could be discovered powerful enough to reach this wondrous height? But still, it is monstrous to seem like creatures without expression and without feeling, and we must choose, if we are silent, one of two things, either to appear never to have felt the special beauty of virginity, or to exhibit ourselves as obstinately blind to all beauty. We have consented, therefore, to speak briefly about this virtue, according to the wish of him who has assigned us this task, and whom in all things we must obey. But let no one expect from us any display of style. Even if we wished it, perhaps we could not produce it, for we are quite unversed in that kind of writing. Even if we possess such power, we would not prefer the favor of a few to the edification of the many. 
a writer of sense should have i take it for his chiefest object not to be admired above all other writers but to profit both himself and them the many chapter three would indeed that some profit might come to myself from this effort i should have undertaken this labor with the greater readiness if i could have hope of sharing according to the scripture in the fruits of the plough and the threshing floor the toil would then have been a pleasure as it is this my knowledge of the beauty of virginity is in some sort vain and useless to me just as the grain is to the muzzled ox that treads the floor or the water that streams from the precipice to a thirsty man when he cannot reach it happy they who have still the power of choosing the better way and have not debarred themselves from it by engagements of the secular life as we have whom a gulf now divides from glorious virginity no one can climb up to that who has once planted his foot upon the secular life we are but spectators of others blessings and witnesses to the happiness of another class even if we strike out some fitting thoughts about virginity we shall not be better than the cocks and scullions who provide sweet luxuries for the tables of the rich without having any portions themselves in what they prepare what a blessing if it had been otherwise if we had not to learn the good by after regrets now they are the enviable ones they succeed even beyond their prayers and their desires who have not put out of their power the enjoyment of these delights we are like those who have a wealthy society with which to compare their own poverty and so are all the more vexed and discontented with their present lot the more exactly we understand the riches of virginity the more we must bewail the other life for we realize by this contrast with better things how poor it is i do not speak only of the future rewards in store for those who have lived thus excellently but those rewards also which they have while alive here for if any one would make up his mind to measure exactly the difference between the two courses he would find it nearly as great as that between heaven and earth the truth of this statement may be known by looking at actual facts but in writing this sad tragedy what will be a fit beginning how shall we really bring to view the evils common to life all men know them by experience but somehow nature has contrived and to blind the actual sufferers so that they willingly ignore their condition shall we begin with its choicest sweets well then is not the sum total of all that is hoped for in marriage and to get delightful companionship grant this obtained let us sketch a marriage in every way most happy illustrious birth competent means suitable ages the very flower of the prime of life deep affection the very best that each can think of the other the sweet rivalry of each wishing to surpass the other in loving in addition popularity power wide reputation and everything else but observe that even beneath this array of blessings the fire of an inevitable pain is smouldering i do not speak of the envy that is always springing up against those of distinguished rank and the liability to attack which hangs over those who seem prosperous and the natural hatred of superiors shown by those who do not share equally in the good fortune which make these seemingly favored ones pass an anxious time more full of pain than pleasure i omit that from the picture and will suppose that envy against them is asleep although it would not be easy to find a single life in which both these blessings were joined 
that is, happiness above the common, and escape from envy. However, let us, if so it is to be, suppose a married life free from all such trials, and let us see if it is possible for those who live with such an amount of good fortune to enjoy it. Why, what kind of vexation is left, you will ask, when even envy and their happiness does not reach them? I affirm that this very thing, the sweetness that surrounds their lives, is the spark which kindles pain. They are human all the time, things weak and perishing. They have to look upon the tombs of their progenitors, and so pain is inseparably bound up with their existence, if they have the least power of reflection. This continued expectancy of death, realized by no sure tokens, but hanging over them, the terrible uncertainty of the future disturbs their present joy, clouding it over with the fear of what is coming. If only before experience comes the results of experience could be learned, or if, when one has entered on this course, it were possible by some other means of conjecture to survey the reality, then what a crowd of deserters would run from marriage into the virgin life! What care and eagerness never to be entangled in that retentive snare, where no one knows for certain how the net galls till they have actually entered it. You would see there, if only you could do it without danger, many contraries uniting, smiles melting into tears, pain mingled with pleasure, death always hanging by expectation over the children that are born, and putting a finger upon each of the sweetest joys. Whenever the husband looks at the beloved face, that moment the fear of separation accompanies the look. If he listens to the sweet voice, the thought comes into his mind that some day he will not hear it. Whenever he is glad with gazing on her beauty, then he shudders most with the presentiment of mourning her loss. When he marks all those charms which to youth are so precious, and which the thoughtless seek for, the bright eyes beneath the lids, the arching eyebrows, the cheek with its sweet and dimpling smile, the natural red that blooms upon the lips, the gold-bound hair shining in many twisted masses on the head, and all that transient grace then, though he may be little given to reflection, he must have this thought also in his inmost soul that some day all this beauty will melt away and become as nothing, turned after all this snow into noisome and unsightly bones, which wear no trace, no memorial, no remnant of that living bloom. Can he live delighted when he thinks of that? Can he trust in these treasures, which he holds as if they would be always his? Nay, it is plain that he will stagger as if he were mocked by a dream, and will have his faith in life shaken, and will look upon what he sees as no longer his. You will understand, if you have a comprehensive view of things as they are, that nothing in this life looks that which it is. It shows to us by the illusions of our imagination one thing, instead of something else. Men gaze open-mouthed at it, and it mocks them with hopes. For a while it hides itself beneath this deceitful show. Then, all of a sudden, in the reverses of life it is revealed as something different from that which man's hopes, conceived by its fraud and foolish hearts, had pictured. Will life's sweetness seem worth taking delight in to him who reflects on this? Will he ever be able really to feel it, so as to have joy in the goods he holds? Will he not, disturbed by the constant fear of some reverse, have the use without the enjoyment? 
I will but mention the portents, dreams, omens, and such like things, which by a foolish habit of thought are taken notice of, and always make men fear the worst. But her time of labor comes upon the young wife, and the occasion is regarded not as the bringing of a child into the world, but as the approach of death. In bearing it is expected that she will die, and, indeed, often this sad presentiment is true, and before they spread the birthday feast, before they taste any of their expected joys, they have to change their rejoicing into lamentation. Still in love's fever, still in the height of their passionate affection, not yet having grasped life's sweetest gifts, as in the vision of a dream, they are suddenly torn away from all they possessed. But what comes next? Domestics, like conquering foes, dismantle the bridal chamber. They deck it for the funeral, but it is death's room now. They make the useless wailings and beatings of the hands. Then there is the memory of former days, curses on those who advised the marriage, reclamations against friends who did not stop it, blame thrown on parents whether they be alive or dead, bitter outbursts against human destiny, a reigning of the whole course of nature, complaints and accusations even against the divine government, war within the man himself, and fighting with those who would admonish, no repugnance to the most shocking words and acts. In some, this state of mind continues, and their reason is more completely swallowed up by grief, and their tragedy has a sadder ending, the victim not enduring to survive the calamity. But rather than this, let us suppose a happier case. The danger of childbirth is past, a child is born to them, the very image of its parents' beauty. Are the occasions for grief at all lessened thereby? Rather, they are increased, for the parents retain all their former fears, and feel in addition those on behalf of the child, lest anything should happen to it in its bringing up. For instance, a bad accident, or by some turn of misfortunes, a sickness, a fever, any dangerous disease. Both parents share alike in these. But who could recount the special anxieties of the wife? We omit the most obvious, which all can understand, the weariness of pregnancy, the danger of childbirth, the cares of nursing, the tearing of her heart in two for her offspring, and, if she is the mother of many, the dividing of her soul into as many parts as she has children, the tenderness with which she herself feels all that is happening to them. That is well understood by every one. But the oracle of God tells us that she is not her own mistress, but finds her resources only in him whom wedlock has made her lord. And so, if she be forever so short a time left alone, she feels as if she were separated from her head, and can ill bear it. She even takes this short absence of her husband to be the prelude of her widowhood. Her fear makes her at once give up all hope. Accordingly, her eyes, filled with terrified suspense, are always fixed upon the door, her ears are always busied with what others are whispering, her heart, stung with her fears, is nearly bursting even before any bad news has arrived. A noise in the doorway, whether fancied or real, acts as a messenger of ill, and on a sudden shakes her very soul, most likely all outside as well, and there is no cause to fear at all. But her fainting spirit is quicker than any message, and turns her fancy from good tidings to despair. Thus even the most favored live, and they are not altogether to be envied. Their life is not to be compared to the freedom of virginity. 
yet this hasty sketch has omitted many of the more distressing details often this young wife too just wedded still brilliant in bridal grace still perhaps blushing when her bridegroom enters and shyly stealing furtive glances at him when passion is all the more intense because modesty prevents it being shown suddenly it has to take the name of a poor lonely widow and to be called all that is pitiable death comes in an instant and changes that bright creature in her white and rich attire into a black-robed mourner he takes off the bridal ornaments and clothes her with the colors of bereavement there is darkness in the once cheerful room and the waiting women sing their long dirges she hates her friends when they try to soften her grief she will not take food she wastes away and in her soul's deep dejection has a strong longing only for her death a longing which often lasts till it comes even supposing that time puts an end to this sorrow still another comes whether she has children or not if she has they are fatherless and as objects of pity themselves renew the memory of her loss if she is childless then the name of her lost husband is rooted up and this grief is greater than the seeming consolation i will say little of the other special sorrows of widowhood for who could enumerate them all exactly she finds her enemies in her relatives some actually take advantage of her affliction others exult over her loss and see with malignant joy the home falling it to pieces the insolence of the servants and the other distresses visible in such a case of which there are plenty in consequence of these many women are compelled to risk once more the trial of the same things not being able to endure this bitter derision as if they could revenge insults by increasing their own sufferings others remembering the past will put up with anything rather than plunge a second time into the like troubles if you wish to learn all the trials of this married life listen to those women who actually know it how they congratulate those who have chosen from the first the virgin life and have not had to learn by experience about the better way that virginity is fortified against all these ills that it has no orphan state no widowhood to mourn it is always in the presence of the undying bridegroom it has the offspring of devotion always to rejoice in it sees continually a home that is truly its own furnished with every treasure because the master always dwells there in this case death does not bring separation but union with him who is longed for for when a soul departs then it is with christ as the apostle says but it is time now that we have examined on the one side the feelings of those whose lot is happy to make a revelation of their lives where poverty and adversity and all other evils which men have to suffer are a fixed condition deformities i mean and diseases and all other lifelong afflictions he whose life is contained in himself either escapes them altogether or can bear them easily possessing a collected mind which is not distracted from itself while he who shares himself with wife and child often has not a moment to bestow even upon regrets for his own condition because anxiety for his dear ones fills his heart but it is superfluous to dwell upon that which every one knows if to what seems prosperity such pain and weariness is bound what may we not expect of the opposite condition every description which attempts to represent it to our view will fall short of the reality yet perhaps we may in a few words declare the depths of its misery 
Those whose lot is contrary to that which passes as prosperous receive their sorrows as well from causes contrary to that. Prosperous lives are marred by the expectancy or the presence of death. But the misery of these is that death delays his coming. These lives, then, are widely divided by opposite feelings. Although equally without hope, they converge to the same end. So many-sided, then, so strangely different are the ills with which marriage supplies the world. There is pain always, whether children are born, or can never be expected, whether they live or die. One abounds in them, but has not enough means for their support. Another feels the want of an heir to the great fortune he has toiled for, and regards as a blessing the other's misfortune. Each of them, in fact, wishes for that very thing which he sees the other regretting. Again, one man loses by death a much-beloved son. Another has a reprobate son alive, both equally to be pitied, though the one mourns over the death, the other over the life of his boy. Neither will I do more than mention how sadly and disastrously family jealousies and quarrels arising from real or fancied causes end. Who could go completely into all those deeds? If you would know what a network of these evils human life is, you need not go back again to those old stories which have furnished subjects to dramatic poets. They are regarded as myths on account of their shocking extravagance. There are in them murders and eating of children, husband murderers, murderers of mothers and brothers, incestuous unions, and every sort of disturbance of nature. And yet the old chronicler begins the story which ends in such horrors with marriage. But, turning from all that, gaze only upon the tragedies that are being enacted on this life stage. It is marriage that supplies mankind with actors there. Go to the law courts and read through the laws there. Then you will know the shameful secrets of marriage. Just as when you hear a physician explaining various diseases, you understand the misery of the human frame by learning the number and kind of sufferings it is liable to. So when you peruse the laws and read there the strange variety of crimes in marriage to which their penalties are attached, you will have a pretty accurate idea of its properties. For the law does not provide remedies for evils which do not exist, any more than a physician has a treatment for diseases which are never known. Chapter 4 But we need no longer show, in this narrow way, the drawback of this life, as if the number of its ills was limited to adulteries, dissensions, and plots. I think we should take the higher and truer view, and say at once that none of that evil in life, which is visible in all its business and all its pursuits, can have any hold over a man if he will not put himself in the fetters of this course. The truth of what we say will be clear thus. A man who, seen through the illusion with the eye of his spirit purged, lifts himself above the struggling world and, to use the words of the apostle, slights it all as but dung, in a way of exiling himself altogether from human life by his abstinence from marriage. That man has no fellowship whatever with the sins of mankind, such as avarice, envy, anger, hatred, and everything of the kind. He has an exemption from all this, and is in every way free and at peace. There is nothing in him to provoke his neighbor's envy, because he clutches none of those objects round which envy in this life gathers. 
he has raised his own life above the world and prizing virtue as his only precious possession he will pass his days in painless peace and quiet for virtue is a possession which though all according to their capacity should share it yet will be always in abundance for those who thirst after it unlike the occupation of the lands on this earth which men divide into sections and the more they add to the one the more they take from the other so that the one person's gain is his fellow's loss once arises the fights for the lion's share from men's hatred of being cheated but the larger owner of this possession is never envied he who snatches the lion's share does no damage to him who claims equal participation as each is capable each has this noble longing satisfied while the wealth of virtues in those who are already occupiers is not exhausted the man then who with his eyes only on such a life makes virtue which has no limit that man can devise his only treasure will surely never brook to bend his soul to any of those low courses which multitudes tread he will not admire earthly riches or human power or any of those things which folly seeks if indeed his mind is still pitched so low he is outside our band of novices and our words do not apply to him but if his thoughts are above walking as it were with god he will be lifted out of the maze of all these errors for the predisposing cause of them all marriage has not touched them now the wish to be before others is the deadly sin of pride and one would not be far wrong in saying that this is the seed-root of all the thorns of sin but it is from reasons connected with marriage that this pride mostly begins to show what i mean we generally find the grasping man throwing the blame on his nearest kin the man mad after notoriety and ambition generally makes his family responsible for this sin he must not be thought inferior to his forefathers he must be deemed a great man by the generation to come by leaving his children historic records of himself so also the other maladies of the soul envy spite hatred and such like are connected with this cause they are to be found among those who are eager about the things of this life he who has fled from it gazes as from some high watch-tower on the prospect of humanity and pities these slaves of vanity for their blindness in setting such a value on bodily well-being he sees some distinguished person giving himself airs because of his public honours and wealth and power and only laughs at the folly of being so puffed up he gives to the years of human life the longest number according to the psalmist's computation and then compares this atom interval with the endless ages and pities the vainglory of those who excite themselves for such low and petty and perishable things what indeed among the things here is there enviable in that which so many strive for honour what is gained by those who win it the mortal remains mortal whether he is honoured or not what good does the possessor of many acres gain in the end except that the foolish man thinks his own that which never belongs to him ignorant seemingly in his greed that the earth is the lord's and the fullness thereof for god is king of all the earth it is the passion of having which gives man a false title of lordship over that which can never belong to them the earth says the wise preacher abides forever 
Ecclesiastes 1.4, ministering to every generation, first one, then another, that is born upon it. But men, though they are so little, even their own masters, that they are brought up into life without knowing it by their Maker's will, and before they wish are withdrawn from it, nevertheless in their excessive vanity think that they are her lords, that they, now born, now dying, rule that which remains continually. One who, reflecting on this, holds cheaply all that mankind prizes, whose only love is the divine life, because all flesh is grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. 1 Peter 1, 24 can never care for this grass which to-day is and to-morrow is not. Studying the divine ways, he knows not only that human life has no fixity, but that the entire universe will not keep on its quiet course forever. He neglects his existence here as an alien and a passing thing. For the Saviour said, Heaven and earth shall pass away. Matthew 24.35 The whole of necessity awaits its refashioning. As long as he is in this tabernacle, 2 Corinthians 5.4, exhibiting mortality, weighed down with this existence, he laments the lengthening of his sojourn in it. As the psalmist poet says in his heavenly songs, Truly they live in darkness who sojourn in these living tabernacles. Wherefore that preacher, groaning at the continuance of this sojourn, says, Woe is me that my sojourn is prolonged. And he attributes the cause of his dejection to darkness, for we know that darkness is called in the Hebrew language Kedah. It is indeed a darkness as of the night which envelops mankind, and prevents them seeing this deceit and knowing that all which is most prized by the living, and moreover all which is the reverse, exists only in the conception of the unreflecting, and is in itself nothing. There was no such reality anywhere as obscurity of birth, or illustrious birth, or glory, or splendor, or ancient renown, or present elevation, or power over others, or subjection. Wealth and comfort, poverty and distress, and all the other inequalities of life, is seem to the ignorant, applying the test of pleasure, vastly different from each other. But to the higher understanding, they are all alike. One is not of greater value than the other, because life runs on to the finish with the same speed through all these opposites and in the lots of either class there remains the same power of choice to live well or ill, through armor on the right hand and on the left, through evil report and good report. 2 Corinthians 6-7 Therefore the clear-seeing mind, which measures reality, will journey on its path without turning, accomplishing its appointed time from its birth to its exit. It is neither softened by the pleasures nor beaten down by the hardships, but as is the way with travellers, it keeps advancing always, and takes but little notice of the views presented. It is the traveller's way to press on to their journey's end, no matter whether they are passing through meadows and cultivated farms, or through wilder and more rugged spots. A smiling landscape does not detain them, nor a gloomy one check their speed. So, too, that lofty mind will press straight on to its self-imposed end, not turning aside to see anything on the way. It passes through life, but its gaze is fixed on heaven. It is the good steersman directing the bark of some landmark there. But the grosser mind looks down, 
it bends its energies to bodily pleasures as surely as the sheep stoop to their pasture it lives for gorging and still lower pleasures it is alienated from the life of god and a stranger to the promise of the covenants it recognizes no good but the gratification of the body it is a mind such as this that walks in darkness and invents all the evil in this life of ours avarice passions unchecked unbound luxury lust of power vainglory the whole mob of moral diseases that invade men's homes in these vices one somehow holds closely to another where one has entered all the rest seem to follow dragging each other in a natural order just as in a chain when you have jerked the first link the others cannot rest and even the link at the other end feels the motion of the first which passes thence by virtue of their contiguity through the intervening links so firmly are men's vices linked together by their very nature when one of them has gained the mastery of a soul the rest of the train follow if you want a graphic picture of this accursed chain suppose a man who because of some special pleasures it gives him is a victim to his thirst for fame then a desire to increase his fortune follows close upon this thirst for fame he becomes grasping but only because the first vice leads him on to this then this grasping after money and superiority engenders either anger with his kith and kin or pride towards his inferiors or envy of those above him then hypocrisy comes in after this envy a sour temper after that a misanthropical spirit after that and behind them all a state of condemnation which ends in the dark fires of hell you see the chain how all follows from one cherished passion seeing then that this inseparable train of moral diseases has entered once for all into the world one single way of escape is pointed out to us in the exhortations of the inspired writings and that is to separate ourselves from the life which involves this sequence of sufferings if we haunt sodom we cannot escape the reign of fire nor if one who has fled out of her looks back upon her desolation can he fail to become a pillar of salt rooted to the spot we cannot be rid of the egyptian bondage unless we leave egypt that is this life that lies under water and pass not that red sea but this black and gloomy sea of life but suppose we remain in this evil bondage and to use the master's words the truth shall not have made us free how can one who seeks a lie and wanders in the amazement of this world ever come to the truth how can one who has surrendered his existence to be chained by nature run away from this captivity an illustration which makes our meaning clearer a winter torrent which impetuous in itself becomes swollen and carries down beneath its stream trees and boulders and anything that comes in its way is death and danger to those alone who live along its course for those who have got well out of its way it rages in vain just so only the man who lives in the turmoil of life has to feel its force only he has to receive those sufferings which nature's stream descending in a flood of troubles must to be true to its kind bring to those who journey on its banks but if a man leaves this torrent and these proud waters he will escape from being a prey to the teeth of this life as the psalm goes on to say and as a bird from the snare on virtue's wings this simile then of the torrent holds 
human life is a tossing and tumultuous stream sweeping down to find its natural level none of the objects sought for in it last till the seekers are satisfied all that is carried to them by this stream comes near just touches them and passes on so that the present moment in this impetuous flow eludes enjoyment for the after-current snatches it from their view it would be our interest therefore to keep far away from such a stream lest engaged on temporal things we should neglect eternity how can a man keep forever anything here be his love for it never so passionate which of life's most cherished objects endures always what flower of prime what gift of strength and beauty what wealth or fame or power they all have their transient bloom and then melt away into their opposites who can continue in life's prime whose strength lasts forever has not nature made the bloom of beauty even more short-lived than the shows of spring for they blossom in their season and after withering for a while again revive after another shedding they are again in leaf and retain their beauty of to-day to a late prime but nature exhibits the human bloom only in the spring of early life then she kills it it is vanished in the frosts of age all other delights also deceive the bodily eye for a time and then pass behind the veil of oblivion nature's inevitable changes are many they agonize him whose love is passionate one way of escape is open it is to be attached to none of these things and to get as far away as possible from the society of this emotional and sensual world or rather for a man to go outside the feelings which his own body gives rise to then as he does not live for the flesh he will not be subject to the troubles of the flesh but this amounts to living for the spirit only and imitating all we can the employment of the world of spirits there they neither marry nor are given in marriage their work and their excellence is to contemplate the father of all purity and to beautify the lines of their own character from the source of all beauty so far as imitation of it is possible End of chapter 4